Would you join me in prayer, please? Father in heaven, as we now come to the point in our praise and worship of you where we experience you and your word through your word and through your servant, Margaret Feinberg, I'd ask, Lord, that you would open her up, open her heart, open her mind, and allow her to be used mightily by you, mightily by you to give us your word and your message that you brought us here together to hear. And, oh, Father, I pray, as your son said, and as John wrote, even in the book of Revelation, that he who has ears, let him hear. Give us ears to hear. Chisel, chisel out the cisterns of our ears, Father, so that your, your word may find fertile ground and grow. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you know, many of you, I love, um, I love meanings of words and names. And so I couldn't resist this week, I couldn't resist this week peeking at the meaning of the name of our speaker today, Margaret Feinberg. So, I found that Margaret means child of light or pearl. Now, you know, pearl is translucent and full of light, so maybe that's where the same. So, child of light or pearl. Feinberg means, Feinberg means a very fine mountain or hill. And so I guess that means that we're going to experience God's Word this morning from a light on a hill. How about that this morning? Does that sound good? And i got to tell you, i got to tell you, that really fits. That really fits this morning. Margaret is not only a speaker, but an author. One Christian magazine names her as one of the leading Christian voices in today's church. She's written over a dozen books, including the critically acclaimed The Organic God and the Sacred Echo. You may have seen those two books out on a table in the foyer. If you haven't already, you can take a look at those resources and more after the service. Margaret's topic today is the generosity of God. And let me tell you what we're in for, for sure then, is something I call an incarnational sermon this morning. Because Margaret and her husband Leif are as generous as they come. Margaret and Leif love the Word of God. They love the local church. They've been attending West Bowles for some time now. And while Margaret's speaking schedule keeps her on the road much of the year, we're indeed honored and blessed to have her and her husband call West Bowles their home church. Would you please join me in welcoming one of our own and my dear friend, Margaret Feinberg. I need to ask you all right off the bat, would it be okay if I took off my shoes? Would that be okay? Okay. Because more and more, I find the Spirit of God just whispering, you be you and you be mine. And when I am simply myself and simply his, I find myself in the best possible place. Um, we are grateful to be part of this church. And in our time this morning, all I wanted to do was simply tell just a little bit of my own story and a question that I have wrestled with for quite a while. And that is, is just something just to be really, really honest, is that there are a whole lot of days that I lie in bed awake at night, and I wonder, is this all there is? 
Now, before you offer me a polite word of encouragement, a pat answer, or even a prescription, I should probably let you know that like many of you, I grew up in the church. I was raised by a Jewish father who came to recognize Yeshua as the Messiah and a Gentile mother. So I was raised in a Christian home with hues of Judaism, and at the end of the day, I make a pretty great bowl of matzo ball soup. While growing up, I attended public school, private school, Christian school, and I was homeschooled, and I still think I'm recovering. I just don't know from which one. When I graduated from high school up in Steamboat Springs, I was one of those really ambitious ones, and more than anything, I wanted to go to Washington, D.C. and study international relations and pre-law. And it was a fabulous plan for my life, except for one little problem. I didn't get in. And instead, I ended up in a small liberal arts school in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, that most people have never heard of. And while I was there my freshman year, I engaged in a little extracurricular activity, better known as partying like a rock star. And while I managed to get the A's on my transcript, I got the B's in life, namely the boys, the beer, and the Ben and Jerry's. But I had a praying mama. And as we all know, praying mamas are some of the most powerful people on the planet. And at the end of that freshman year, I remember my youth pastor called. And he said, Margaret, there's a Christian conference that I really think that you need to go to. And so I did. And while I was there, it was like God grabbed me by the scruff of the neck. And he said, you are my child, and I have called you by name. Come back to me. And I began turning my life around and going back and spending time in this book. And in fact, I spent so much time in this book that I actually became a New Testament studies major at the small liberal arts school in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Well, flash forward four years, and now I'm a religion major focusing on New Testament, and people are asking me, what are you going to do with that? And the truth was, I had no idea. And for those of you or your children who have been sociology majors or communication majors or anthropology majors, you reach your senior year, and you have no idea what you're going to do with your life. And so my remedy was to throw applications in all directions. And the one that stuck with me was for an internship at a small Christian magazine in Lake Mary, Florida. And so I packed up from North Carolina. I went down and I spent the summer where I learned two very important things about myself. Number one, that I loved writing. And number two, that I was not built for a cubicle. Chalk it up to one too many 14ers or powder mornings. And so at the end of that summer, I remember that there weren't really any job opportunities. And so I was just kind of struggling about what to do. And around that time, my parents called and they said, Margaret, we're going on a mission trip to Honduras. Would you like to go? And I said, well, I don't know. And then they said the magic words, we'll pay. <laughs> and I was so there. So I pack up and I go down to Honduras and I spend a week and I decide, well, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. I mean, after all, I grew up in the church and I don't know about you guys, but growing up in the church, it was often when the missionaries came back that often there was this fanfare and they'd tell these amazing stories of what God was doing. And so I thought if they love God and they serve God overseas, and if I love God, then maybe I'm supposed to serve God overseas. And so I ended up spending several months in Honduras and I can honestly say they were some of the worst months of my life. 
Shortly after I got there, I caught a little bug by the name of amoeba. And for any of you who have ever had your little Mexican vacation turned sour, you know that there is not a whole lot of ministry that goes on when you are hanging out with John. Are we tracking? (laughs) And if that was not enough, I also discovered that mi espanol es terrible. And if that was not enough, I remember that after being there about six weeks, I was riding in the back of a bus going to see some missionaries in a distant part of the country, and I had all my stuff when a man came up to me with a knife blade, held it at my neck, and said, give me all of your stuff in Spanish. And the worst part was I understood him. And so I'm sitting there with my half-drunk water bottle and all my stuff, and I'm saying, no, no, you cannot have it, when all of a sudden the words of my father flash through my mind, and he always used to say, if you're ever getting robbed, give them what they want because it's never worth it. And so I'm like, no, no, okay, here you go. And now I am stuck in Honduras, and I have $87, a passport, and a very upset stomach. And I am thinking, well, maybe this is still what God has for me in my life. Because sometimes when we try to pursue that thing that God has for us, we encounter adversity or difficulty. And so I went to some of the longtime missionaries, and I told them my story, and I asked, is this normal? And they looked at me, and they said, no, go home. <laughs> And so about 10 months after college graduation, I ended up doing what most college graduates do when they have no idea what they want to do with their life. And I moved back in with mom and dad. And while I am living with my parents, I am crying out to God and I am praying and I am saying, Lord, just tell me what to do. I love you and I want to serve you with my life. And as I'm praying, I honestly don't hear a peep. And that's when I decided to turn the question around and ask myself if I could do anything with my life and time and money were not factors, what would I want to do? And as I thought and as I prayed, I only had one answer. I wanted to write. In fact, I wanted to write more than I wanted to eat, which is a really good thing because most writers grow up to be starving artists. And so I took those clips from those several magazines and I sent, or from that internship and I wrote several magazines and I said, hi, my name is Margaret Feinberg and you have never heard of me, but could I write the reviews in the back of your magazine? Because I knew that if I could win an editor's confidence with the smallest publishable piece in their magazine that I could work my way up and slowly I did. And I went from writing reviews to news stories to feature stories to cover stories and eventually in 2001, Relevant Books published my first book, God Whisper. And since then, I've had the opportunity to write books like The Sacred Echo, 20-something Surviving and Thriving in the Real World, and ironically, a book called What the Heck Should I Do With My Life? And I've had the privilege of sharing the story not only of what God has been doing in my own life, but what he's been doing in my generation and in communities around the world. Well, a few years ago, I was living up in Steamboat when I got a call from my aunt who was up in Alaska, and she said that her husband, my uncle, had died suddenly, and she needed help with her bed and breakfast. And so I went up one summer to help her, and she asked if I could come back the second. And while I was there that second summer, I remember I was signing books in a church cafe when this six-foot-eight Alaskan walked in and bought two copies. And he managed to steal my heart. And so the six-foot-eight guy up in the sound booth who wears shorts 
year-round. That is the man whom I love and serve and adore. And about 18 months ago, after spending almost five years in Alaska, we got to move back here. And so today I get to live in Morrison, Colorado. We have a small house with a great view and an adorable dog named Hershey. And yet despite all of God's goodness and all of his blessings, there are still nights that I lie in bed awake and I wonder, is this all there is? Now that's not the kind of question that you want to say out loud to yourself, let alone to someone else. And so a while back I took it to the one person who I knew where that was safe and that was God. And I began crying out to him and saying, God, where does this sense of discontentment come from? You have given us so much. We live in the United States of abundance and still I want more. And I felt like the Holy Spirit tapped me on the shoulder and he said, Margaret, that hunger, that sense of discontent you have is actually an answer to your own prayers. And so I went to my prayer journal, the one that I keep in the back of my Bible because it's one of the few places that I won't lose it. And on the second column, the fifth thing down, it says hunger. You see, I pray on almost a daily basis for spiritual hunger. I ask God that I would become so hungry for the things of Him and His world that I would not be satisfied with the things of this world. And on those nights when I lie in bed awake and I wonder, is this all there is? God is faithfully answering that prayer. Well, a while back, the hunger began stirring to such an extent that I didn't quite know what to do with it. And it forced me to kind of take a spiritual inventory of my life. And as I did, I realized that at my core, I am a total Jesus girl. Like, I love the Gospels and the stories of Jesus. I love the book of Matthew, how he goes into great depth and detail of all that Jesus did. And then there's Mark. He's more brief and concise. It's like he gets in, he gets out out and he lands the plane. And then there's Luke. He's our scientist. He's the one who, if you want a scientific or a medical perspective of the story of Jesus, you read the book of Luke. But then there's John, my heartthrob. He is the artsy-fartsy one. He is the one who adds color and vibe and hue to the gospel stories. And when I read those portraits of Jesus, my faith cannot help but blossom. And because of the way that I was raised as a young girl, I came to recognize the Holy Spirit pretty early on, both as a source of comfort and as a source of conviction. He is that one who, when the paths of life are heading in all different directions, says this is the one. You walk in it. But when I thought about God, I realized that there was a whole lot that I didn't know. Even growing up in the church, even studying religion in the New Testament and the Old Testament in school, I could tell you a whole lot about God, but yet deep down inside there was a sense that I didn't really know him. Like I could tell you a lot about him, like I could tell you a lot about maybe the new president of the United States or Brad Pitt or Angelina Jolie or the latest on Britney Spears without actually knowing them. And so I began to cry out in my heart and say, God, I want to know you. I want to know you like I have never known you before. I want to know you organically. Now, that word organic may seem a little bit strange, especially when it comes to a relationship with God. And yet if you look up organic in the dictionary, it basically means three things, natural, pure, and essential. 
And in so many ways, isn't that what we all long for in our relationship with God? We want a relationship that's natural, that's not forced or contrived, but it's just alive and it's just bubbling up inside of us. We want a relationship that's pure because it's founded on his word. And we want a relationship that is essential because ultimately he is our lifeline. And so I began crying out to God and saying, God, how do I get to know you in this way? And I knew that there was only one answer, and it was in that book. And so I began going through in my own journal and writing down every single verse in the entire New Testament and key books of the Old Testament that revealed something about God. Now there were quite a few. And so I realized kind of early on that I needed to categorize them. And I began looking at God for his likes and his dislikes, those places in scripture where he's so readily apparent and those others where he seems to be withdrawn. I began to treat that journey to get to know God like a first date or that person who you meet and you think, you are going to be my friend. I'm going to get to know you. I'm going to love you. And you have no choice in the matter. Because ultimately, God is a rewarder of those who seek him. And so this morning, what I wanted to do was just share one of the things that I discovered in my own organic journey to get to know God. And it came rather early. Because I thought, okay, if I'm going to get to know God, if God is going to be my BFF, right, my best friends forever for all of you non-texters, then that means that I've got to figure out what does God like, and more importantly, what does he love? Because that's what best friends do. Like, they get to know what each other's likes and loves, and then they like and love the same things, and they share them, and everything is great. And so I thought, okay, well, I need to know what God likes and what he loves. And so I began going through the scripture and actually looking up every single place where it says, what God loves. And what surprised me was not how many things that God loves, but in some ways, how few. Like, we know in Isaiah that God loves justice and he loves the poor. According to Malachi 2.11, he loves his sanctuary. And most of us are familiar with John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We know that God loves his people and that he loves Israel. And yet as I was going through the scripture, I only found one verse that precisely and concisely said what God loves. And it's found in 2 Corinthians 9-7. And it simply says, God loves a cheerful giver. And I thought, wow. I mean, I had read that verse before, but never with as much weight or as much meaning or as much depth. And I began to think, okay, if God loves cheerful givers, then I want to love cheerful givers. And in fact, I don't just want to love cheerful givers. I want to be a cheerful giver. But then I began to think, well, wait a second. Why does God love cheerful givers so much? And that's when I realized that God loves cheerful givers because when we give cheerfully, we reflect our outrageously generous God. We reflect a God who gives us so much more than we can ever ask for or expect. I experienced this firsthand growing up with my father. You see, growing up in my home, and kind of like as a young teenager, I really couldn't get a job outside of the house. And so I was totally dependent on my parents for cash. And many of you parents know exactly what that feels like. Well, in my own home, when it came to asking for money, that usually meant going 
to my dad. And when I go into my dad and maybe I wanted to ask him for something like going to like some Saturday matinee to like watch a movie with friends, I remember it really didn't matter what I was asking for. He always gave me the same response. How much do you need? And I don't know what it was about my personality, but growing up, like if I was like wanting like to go to the Saturday matinee and I knew that it cost $7.50, I would go to my dad and I'd say, Dad, you know, can I just have $7.50? Not thinking that I should ask for a couple extra dollars to like have snacks at the movies or maybe to do something fun afterwards. And, and there was something about me that maybe if I had a couple dollars left over from the weekend before, I'd go to my dad and I'd say, I just need $5. $5 is all that I need. And I don't know if my dad ever knew that about me, but time and time again growing up when I would ask for $5, he would hand me a 10. And when I would ask for 10, he would hand me a 20. And when I would ask for 30 or 40 for some weekend event, he would hand me 40 or 50, whether he could afford it or not. And in those moments, my earthly father gave me an incredible portrait of our heavenly father, a God who gives us so much more than we can ever ask for, who when we can't even express the groans and the aches inside of our heart, our God answers with outrageous generosity. I think one of the places in the scripture where this is so readily apparent is in the book of Exodus, chapter 16. And for those of you who brought a Bible, I would love for you to flip there. And as you're going there in your Bible, I want to give you a little bit of background of where this story is coming from. Because you see, back in the day, there was a really bad guy ruling over God's people by the name of Pharaoh. And he was ruling over the people, and finally God looked down and he said, enough. And he raised up a guy by the name of Moses, and he gave him a wingman by the name of Aaron. And together, through a series of miracles, both in the sky and in the land, Pharaoh's heart was turned, and finally he said, God's people, the Israelites, can go free. And so the Israelites are excited, and they're packing up to leave the land. And as they are, they're actually having their bags stuffed with the gold of the Egyptians. And they're heading out of town, and as they are, it's like almost as they're crossing the border, it's like Pharaoh's heart turns back, and he sends his armies after them. And the Israelites keep on going until they find themselves pinned up against the Red Sea. And God, in one of his most incredible displays, reaches down from heaven and parts the sea into two halves, and the Israelites begin making their way across, to which Moses at the front yells back, don't eat the shellfish, I'll explain later. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Egyptian army is chasing them in. And just as the last Israelite steps safely to the other side, the waters crash in, destroying the Egyptian army and yet preserving every last Israelite. Now those are the glory days. Those are the kinds of days in life and in ministry that you never forget. Except when we get to Exodus 16, we find that it isn't too long till the people do begin forgetting. And they begin grumbling, not just in their hearts, but in their bellies. And they begin crying out to God and saying, God, what have you done? Have you brought us out here into this desert just to die? Is this really your plan for us? 
And yet God, rather than answering in anger, answers in abundance. And he provides them meat to eat, and he provides them manna, this sweet coriander-like substance that they were to gather in the mornings. And what caught my attention in Exodus 16 was some of the details regarding that manna. Because, you see, it says that the Israelites were to get up early in the morning before the sun rose overhead and go out and gather their portions of manna. They were to do this six days a week, except on the sixth day, they were to gather two portions, because on the seventh day, they were to rest. Now, what's intriguing is this is in Exodus 16, but it's not until Exodus 20 that Moses goes up Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments, the third of which is you should honor the Sabbath. And so God is not just going with his people and his provision and plan. He's actually going before them. But in Exodus 16, 16, some of the directions get really, really specific. And it says, this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, the manna, every man as much as you should eat. And you shall take an omer apiece according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. And the sons of Israel did so, and some gathered little, and some gathered much, and some little. Okay, let's put on the brakes. Let's translate this into a modern understanding. So among the Israelites, there were basically some total overachievers and some complete slackers, right? There were some Israelites who would get up first thing in the morning, they would go far and wide, they would gather a ton of manna, and they would come back to their tents. And then there were the Israelites, like some of us, who would press news over and over again. And at the last possible moment, before the sun rose overhead and, and melted all of the manna, they would go outside their tent, they'd scoop up a little manna, and they'd go like, eh, that's enough, and head back in. Oy vey. Are we tracking? And yet, in verse 18, when they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. And I believe this is one of those places in the scripture where we are reminded that the provision in our lives is not the work of our hands, but it is the gift of our outrageously generous God. You see, this is one of those places in the scripture where we are reminded that it is God who ultimately is our employer employer. It is God is the one who ultimately signs our paychecks. He is the one who is going to help us make that mortgage payment or pay that rent. And he is the one who ultimately will help us pay back our student loan debt. Amen? Amen. In verse 19, it says, and Moses said to them, let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses and some left part of it until morning and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them. They didn't trust the provision of their outrageously generous God. They tried to store up, and it rotted in their midst. I used to think that that was some Old Testament story, something that happened way back then but wouldn't happen today. But a few years ago, I was living in Steamboat Springs, and it was the middle of winter, kind of like now. And I remember a friend was coming over, and we were going to go out snowshoeing for the afternoon. And when she got to my house, she said, Margaret, it's a little bit colder than I had planned. Can I borrow a sweater? And I said, no problem. And so I went to my closet, and I grabbed the first sweater that was there, and, and I was handing it to her. And as I was handing it to her, I sensed one of those God whispers. Have any of you ever had that? And I sensed the God whisper saying, give it to her. And I looked down, and I thought, this is now my favorite sweater. (laughs) I love this sweater. God, you don't mean for me to give her this sweater. And I argued with God until the moment passed. Well, a few days later, another friend came over, and we were going to go out skiing and boarding for the afternoon. 
And I remember she said, Margaret, I totally forgot my gloves at home. Is there any chance that I could borrow a pair? And I thought, learning my lesson from a few days ago, I am not going to loan her my used gloves. I am going to loan her my brand new gloves from REI. Like, these are all the cool ones with all the features, and, like, you can take them to the moon. And so I loan her my gloves. We go out on the mountain. We have a fabulous day. We're coming back in, and she's, you know, we're unpacking and everything, and she hands me the gloves, and she goes, here you go, Margaret. And as she extends her arm, I sense that God whisper a second time. And it says, give them to her. And I am like, God... These are my new gloves from REI. Like they have all these features as if God didn't know. And I'm trying to explain to him and argue. She's already got her own gloves. She doesn't need gloves. No, and I totally argued until the moment passed. A few more days passed and another friend came over. And I remember we were hanging out. We were drinking tea and coffee and just totally hanging out and and eating these snacks. And there was this box of chocolate yum-yums. And we ate way too many of them. And at the end of the afternoon, she's packing up to go and head out. There she is. I'm cleaning up. And I remember I was about to close the box when I heard that God whisper a third time. And it said, give them to her. And I looked in that box, and there were only like three or four left and a ton of crumbs. And I swear somebody had like stuck their finger in one of them. And I was like, God, you don't call us to give leftovers. You call us to give your very best. And the moment passed. About a week went by. And within a 24-hour period of time, I went to my closet and grabbed my sweater and put it on. And then I went to the fridge to grab a drink, and I opened it up, and I sipped. And as I did, it spilled out, and it had that kind of stain that no amount of stain remover would take out. And then I went to go out later that afternoon, and I remember it was a little bit cold, and so I was grabbing my gloves, and one of them was gone. And I still don't even know where it went. And later on, I eventually went to go grab a snack. And I opened that box of chocolate yum-yums, and they were literally rotting and molding inside. And when I saw that mold, it was like the Holy Spirit connected the dots in my life. And he said, Margaret, I have been calling you to give, and you have been holding back. And I said, God, forgive me. I am no different than the Israelites. Change me. I want to be outrageously generous like you are. And slowly I've been discovering that God is faithful to answer that prayer. And as we give freely, what I'm discovering is that we become just a little bit more free ourselves. When we give, it's like we become just a little bit more attached to that world and a little less attached to this one. You see, we can all say with our mouths what we believe about God, but what we truly believe will manifest itself in our actions. It all goes back to that passage in 2 Corinthians 9-7. And if you back up to verse 6, it says, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That word for cheerful in the Greek is the word hilario. It's the word we get the word hilarious from. Do we have any fans of The Office in here? Okay, for those of you who are not fans of The Office, it is really affordable therapy for those awkward moments at work. But for those of you who watch The Office, you know that Dwight Schrute is funny. 
And when somebody is funny, you laugh. You have the sense to respond. But we also know that Michael Scott is hilarious. And when something is hilarious, we laugh hard. We can't help but bend over and hurt our stomach muscles because of the joy of the moment. And when we laugh hard, it encompasses the fullness of our being. And in the same way, God invites us to be hilarious givers with him. To give to God, not just with our checkbook and our day planner. To give to God, not just with our money and our time, but out of the fullness of who we are and who God has called called and created us to be. You see, I believe that in these tough economic times, there are many, many voices saying, hold back, hold it conservative. And yet at these times, this is when the people of God have the opportunity to give and to shine the brightest and to reflect the outrageously generous God that we serve. So how do you begin your own organic journey to get to know God? I believe that just like for me, it begins in this book. For some of you, you have never read this book all the way through. Can I challenge you this year to make a commitment to read the Bible the full way through? You may be thinking, wow, that's a really thick book. And I'm thinking, but you made it through Harry Potter. Surely, (laughs) surely you can make it through this one. If you read but just three chapters a day, You will be finished by the end of the year. You may have to sprinkle in a few more because we're near the end of January, but you will get through it. And in the process, you will get to see the big story of what God has been doing in history and what he is going to continue to do for the days to come. For others of you, you may say, well, I've already read the Bible, or that's still a little bit intimidating. And for you, can I give you a second option? That you would pick one book of the Bible, and you would get to know it, not just till you know it, but until you own it. That you would look at that book of the Bible, even if it's a small one like Obadiah, and that you would read it in your Bible translation. Then you would borrow your friend's Bible's translations and read it through on theirs. Get a hold of some study Bibles. Go online to places like BibleGateway.com and Crosswalk.com and get to know not just the story of that book, but how that story weaves into the greater story of all that God is doing. And a third option for some of you who are a little bit more relationally oriented is that you would pick one person in the Bible and you would get to know them not just as a biblical character, but as a friend. I did this a while back with Daniel, and over the course of a summer, it was like he went from being Daniel to Danny. I got to see a man who in the scripture we see the very heights and the very depths of his life. And yet in the middle there's a whole lot that we really don't know what happened. I began to see a man who was given an incredible gift from God for dream interpretation. And he managed to use that gift not just for his own benefit or the benefit of his friends, but the benefit of his king and his kingdom. And even for us today as his prophecies are still unfolding. And I began to see a man who was, was also learned how to live righteously in an incredibly liberal culture. And isn't that something that we could all learn from? So my call to action for you today is that you would pick one of those three options. That you would either commit to reading the Bible through this year, that, or that you would commit to picking one book of the Bible and reading and studying it till you own it. Or you would pick one person in the Bible and make them your friend in the months to come. And that you would verbally let somebody know today 
what your commitment is. Whether it's on the drive home, whether it's on a telephone call with a friend, whether it's through Facebook or an email, make that commitment and ask that person to hold you accountable. And know this, that if you find yourself lying in bed at night and wondering, is this all there is? Can I assure you there is so much more? And there is a God who right now, this year, this moment, invites you to get to know him like never before. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are a God who more than anything desires a relationship with us. Father, I ask that you would stir up the hunger in our own hearts for you. Father, I ask that you would make us hungry to know you and your word, and that in that process we will find ourselves loving the things that you love, that we will have ourselves ignited by a spirit of generosity, that we will be the cheerful givers that you have called us to be, even when the days turn dark, that we will have the opportunity to shine the brightest as the people of God. We thank you and we praise you for being our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.